All right, you can be seated. Well, this is our fourth and final sermon on the seventh commandment. Got an extra sermon than what we did on the sixth commandment because, well, there's so much here. And this is such a huge, the the problem of adultery, sexual morality is such a huge problem in our society. I guess it's been in other societies too, but it's so common. And I know that some of the ministers I've talked to before, my fellow ministers, that they will say, you know, this is one of the biggest problems in the the church. So often it's a snare for people. And there's so much material as well in the Bible because it's a big problem. There's so much about adultery and marriage and and things like that that are written in in the Holy Scripture. So it calls for us to give attention to it. I began, or I began with an overview when we came to this commandment, as I do with all of the commandments with, in the first sermon, an overview of the seventh commandment. Then we looked at the problem of divorce and at how we are to do what we can to keep together what God has joined together. When husband and wife are joined together, the husband and wife need to do all they can to keep it together, but also other people need to encourage them and, and to help them to to do what will promote rather than divide. Then we looked at the wrongful use of sex in marriage, or wrongful use of sex, in a sermon that was entitled Soul Shrinking Lust. We looked at how inordinate lust shrivels up our souls, makes us self-focused, self-centered, and how that we need to turn to our Lord Jesus Christ to see him who is not at all self-centered and self-focused and who is seeing the needs of others and in giving to the needs of others, giving himself for that. And today in our final sermon, I want to look at the proper place of, that sex has in marriage. This is the place that it has. That's what we're looking at. And before we go to our scripture reading, Let's go ahead and confess questions 70 through 72 in unison, the answers in unison. I'll ask a question, we'll say the answer together, as usual. Question 70, which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is that shall not commit adultery. Question 71, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. Question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Now, besides the scripture reading that we already had, which we are going to be looking at, 1 Corinthians 7, we'll look at that one at the end, I also have two additional readings for us from Genesis, both in the early chapters of Genesis that we will, we will consider. So we're, each of these scripture readings will use to speak about one of the purposes of sex in marriage. There are three 
that we're looking at. And each of these passages addresses one of those purposes. So please give your attention as I now read the two passages from Genesis that we'll be looking at. The first one is from Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. This is the word of God, beginning in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That would end the first reading. The second reading is from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Here again is the word of God, beginning in Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. So again today, I want to look at the place that sex has in the threefold purpose of marriage. I have shown you in previous sermons, and this needs to be rock solid in our understanding, that there is only one kind of relationship where sexual expression is allowed, and that is in marriage. Sex belongs to and is permitted only in the relationship where there is a husband and wife who are joined together as long as they both shall live in a covenant of marriage. Sexual involvement in any other place, whether it be a solo act with a partner you hate or with a partner you love, doesn't matter, heterosexual or homosexual, it is a transgression of God's law and to be avoided if it is outside of covenant of marriage. The scripture is clear that God will judge this sin. We're told that very directly about this sin that is so common. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So marriage is the only relationship that's meant to be sexual. It is very important for us to understand the place of sex in marriage. So, 
please go to the passage that begins that we just read. It was the third one that we read in Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18 through 25, we see that the purpose of marriage and sex in marriage is for companionship. The passage shows us the beautiful way that God introduced marriage to us when he first made us. He had just made a beautiful world that was filled with with things for us human beings. The world was made for us. He prepared all sorts of things for us to enjoy. Beautiful things for us to see, tasty things for us to eat, things to touch, things to hear, things to explore, things to cultivate. We were given language. We had the ability and the desire to explore and to research, to build and to design and to express ourselves in art and poetry. And remember, before the fall, there was no curse. Everything was perfectly suited for us to enjoy. There was no death, no sickness, no vicious animals, no destructive storms, no pestilence. God had even planted a garden for Adam to help him get started. We wonder sometimes if he had not given him a little tool shed with some tools in it because God had provided for him so that he didn't just come into the world and have to start digging up some bare ground somewhere to plant things. He had a garden that was already there. It was already started for him, just like when he took his people into the promised land and they took houses they did not build and vineyards and olive groves that they did not plant. God had him in a garden. But in Genesis 2.18, the man is without another human companion. So he had everything, but he didn't have another human companion. And God says that it was not good for man to be alone. Now we need to understand that that is a very general statement. It's not just saying... It certainly can be used to say that it's good for a man to marry, but it's talking about (laughs) completely alone. There is no one else in the world, and this is not how it was meant to be for mankind. No, indeed, God did not make us to be alone, a sole human being in the whole world. Can you imagine living in paradise all by yourself? I mean, what would that be? It's not good. Having no one to share a beautiful sunset with, and there have been lots of beautiful things to see, no one to cook supper for or to do a painting for. It's just you. No one to share music with, no one to talk to. God made us very much to be social creatures. And when there was only Adam, God wasn't finished yet. He wasn't finished making us. We are made in God's image, and a part of being made in his image is that we are social creatures who are made to love and to share. Just as the Father loves the Son, and the Father and the Son love the Holy Spirit, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son, so husbands love their wives and delight in giving to them, and wives in serving their husbands. We have the next scene in Genesis 2 where Adam names all the animals. He is classifying them, as it were, understanding them, their place that each has in creation. I wonder what all the animals would have been used for. You know, you have elephants helping you carry things around. I don't know how it would have worked, but animals in an unfallen world. But none of them are suitable 
to be his companion in the fullest sense of companionship. Sure, I mean, animals make great companions, and they would have much, so, much more so before the fall, but God intended a companionship among equals, those who are like us. Then you know what happened. We have just read it in our scripture reading. God put the man to sleep, and he made a woman out of his rib. She was of his substance, not just made out of the same material, but made out of his own material, the same clay that God made Adam with, he used to form Eve out of what he formed Adam with, out of Adam, so that she was of his substance, as he later said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he calls her woman. This is a really neat thing with the way the words work. It's similar to how it is in English. The Hebrew is similar to English. Of course, we don't even know what the language might have been back before the the fall, but uh, it's the accounts given in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word for woman is isha, while the word for man is ish. So you see how that's like woman and man. Like the woman just has something added to it. The word for woman you have. You have man, and then you have woman, and then you have ish, and then you have isha. So it's, it's added on to the end rather than the beginning, but still, it's the whole, same idea. The whole point is that she was like him, and yet she was different. She was of his substance. Again, God didn't make a separate lump of clay, didn't have two lumps of clay, make them side by side, but he made her of Adam's rib. And he did not breathe into her the breath of life as he did Adam, at least we're not told so. But she, in some mysterious way, derived her spirit and her soul from Adam, just as children somehow derive their spirit and soul from their parents. Now, some people teach that God does a special creation at that time, but I think that contradicts that God finished his work of creation in six days. He doesn't create new things after that. He does new things, but he doesn't create. Um, he, we reproduce after our kind, and that includes body and soul. Anyway, uh, after God made her, he brought her to Adam, verse 22. It is a tremendous thing. We're getting ready to have a wedding soon. We copy this in our weddings, and I mentioned it in the earlier sermon, what we call the presentation of the bride. The groom is there at the front of the church, and then the bride appears at the back, usually with her father, and the music rises, and everybody stands, and she is brought to him, like we sing about in Psalm 45. She's brought in Psalm 45, the bridesmaids follow, we usually have them go ahead, but anyway, the bride is there, and Adam and Eve did not have all the music and they didn't have the congregation, though I suppose the animals might have looked on. I don't know how that would have worked. And the angels were no doubt watching. But Adam was certainly celebrating. I don't think we can begin to imagine how extremely thankful he must have been. Again, can you imagine? We're not just talking about not having a wife. We're talking about not having another human being in all the world. And just think what it must have been like when God presents this creature to him. He had never seen a woman. And God brings her to him and he starts speaking poetry. 
That's what he does right away. It's the first time he's quoted of saying anything. anything it's the first time anything he says is quoted, maybe I should say. Don't, not saying he never said anything, but it's not, we're not told of it. And the first thing he says is a poem about his wife. <laughs> Verse 23. This is now a bone of my bones. In flesh of my flesh, she shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. She's not like all those animals that are not like me. She is taken bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is like me, and yet she's not like me. She's different. It's a poem that celebrates the fact that she is like him, and obviously another person and another gender at that. And it's right here that we learn the will of God that marriage is intended to be a permanent companionship because God's word says so in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is looking to the future when you would have children that would be born and then they would grow up and leave their father and mother. Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother to leave. But in the future, this is the pattern They would leave father and mother and be joined together in holy matrimony. We know that this companionship is a permanent bond between the two of them. How do we know that? Well, if there's any doubt from the words themselves, when it says that they will become one flesh, leave their father and mother and be joined together and become one flesh, there's any doubt from that text. Jesus makes it certain because he interprets it for us. In Matthew 19, for example, is a union that no one, is to put asunder or break apart. Jesus is the one who said, based on this verse, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, Matthew 19, 6. So what is the nature of this companionship? Well, it is a companionship of joy. The man and the woman are to love one another and to cherish one another. They are to enjoy each other and to enjoy sharing the world together as co-heirs of creation. And it's a working companionship. They're to fill the earth and subdue it in love and service to each other. Filling the earth involves having children and training them up. More about that later. And subduing the earth involves making things for each other to enjoy and sharing the things together that they have made. Again, it's much more interesting to do music that you share with someone else or to make food that you share with someone else. Some of these things will be shared with others, of course, outside the marriage. But a husband and wife have one thing that is not shared outside. They have a special eye to serving each other in all things and sharing God's creation together. But the thing that especially sets their companionship apart as unique in marriage is the from all other relationships is this thing of the two becoming one flesh. Now while this speaks of the permanence of the marriage relationships as, as we've seen, it also speaks of marriage as uniquely sexual. One flesh definitely has that meaning and that connotation in scripture because for example, in 1 Corinthians 6 It describes how a man who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. And then to make it extra clear, it quotes from Genesis 2.24 that the two become one flesh. So by that sexual union, they become one flesh in an inordinate way, a way contrary to God's commandments. 
So this is what it's talking about. The sexual relationship is an intimacy or companionship that God has reserved for marriage. As we saw last week, it cheapens the significance and the value of sexual intimacy to share it in other relationships or outside marriage. It becomes less meaningful. It becomes less enriching to the relationship, even when it is only through imaginary and fan- imagination and fantasy that one enters into sexual relationships outside of the marriage bed. That's why porn and even mental lust are so destructive because it breaks down the unique union that God appointed for the enrichment of marriage. No one should think that he or she can get around this. It has always destructive consequences, always. And so care needs to be exercised. But when rightly used in marriage, sexual intimacy draws a husband and wife into a deeper, richer companionship of sharing and giving to one another. God has obviously designed our bodies to have physical pleasure in this way, but he has also made our spirits to be enriched with our spouse through sexual union. Not only our body, but also our spirit. It is a special gift of God, which we are to receive with thanksgiving and use in marriage, sharing and giving of ourselves to another. In 1 Corinthians 7, it refers to sexual intimacy as rendering due affection to your spouse, and it accuses you of defrauding them when you do not do so. God intends sexual relations to be a part of marriage, of companionship in marriage. Now let's move on to our second passage in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We're going to say more about 1 Corinthians 7 when we get to our third point. But move on to our second passage. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In this passage, we see that marriage and sex in marriage is for the purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. You can see how this is developed in our text. First, it explains that God purposed to make us in his image and to give us dominion over the rest of creation. I already spoke about how God made everything for us. He gave it to us and he put us in charge of it. And part of being in charge of it is to subdue it. Man is responsible to enjoy and make use of all that God's packed into the creation, as I told you. We study it, enjoy it, share it, develop it. Basically, we take what God has given us and enjoy and love. We bless each other with it. Every time you cook a meal for your family or when you build something or when you write something, it's part of subduing the earth. Farmers grow things, truckers deliver things, technicians develop things, and poets write songs about it. Um, All that musicians perform on instruments invented and constructed by wise craftsmen. We do these things because God made us in his image and we have a desire to do such things. Uh, Even though we're fallen, we're still engaged in subduing the earth though we have to struggle with the effects of the curse and the difficulties of the curse. Even more harmful, we have our sin that makes us selfish and greedy instead of giving and loving with servant hearts. But still, the imprint of God's image is on us, even though it's all twisted up by our sin. But more to the point of filling the earth, 
the text goes on to say that God, having planned all of this, then made male and female after his image. And then when he made male and female, he called us to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. It is obvious that if we are to fill the earth and subdue it, that is to make use of all that God has packed into it for us, we must be fruitful and we must multiply. We must, in other words, have children. <laughs> that's, that's what it's talking about. And since marriage is the only place that God allows sexual relations to be enjoyed, and since sexual relations are the only way to bring forth children, then that means that sexual relations in marriage are not only for companionship, but also for filling the earth with children. We need to accept the fact that besides companionship, God gave us sex for the purpose of filling the earth with people. So the first reason we saw was companionship. Second reason is to fill it with people. Today, there are some who suppose that the earth is already full. But I think we need to leave that for God to decide when it's full. The truth is that whenever people multiply in a place, they subdue the earth in such a way that many more people can live there comfortably in small areas. For example, when the large and prosperous societies of the Americas collapsed, the ones that remained were running out of resources, even though the people had died off. How could that be when they had lots more room? They were starving to death in a wide open land. But then when Europeans began to move in and fill the land, then the earth was subdued and the land was easily able to sustain a much larger population. Those few had been starving and now the many were able to prosper and survive, just as others had in the past. And further to that, there were many in the United States in the 1800s who, and in Canada too, who, who looked at the present level of technology they had, and they couldn't envision how the land could possibly support a larger population. In the 1800s, they were saying that. There was a lot of talk about it. There would not be enough whale oil was one of the biggest concerns, and also that there wouldn't be enough wood to sustain us. We, we've got too many people. We can't live. We're looking at the population growth. This is going to be impossible. We're wrecked. But here we are, way more people in the 1800s, continuing to develop more and more technologies to sustain ourselves even more comfortably than people ever sustained themselves in the 1800s. And we don't even use whale oil. Not much, anyway. Anybody use whale oil? I, I, I don't and, and of course, there are more fear mongers, though, going about today with the same kind of dire warnings that they've always had. There's too many people. There's too many people. Satan hates people. He hates to have people multiply because we're, we're made in God's image. He, he traffics in death. He loves death and destruction and, and emptying the world. God says, fill the world. Our society today, not being godly, says empty the world. When, when I say that we need to leave this matter in God's hands, I mean that we're to keep on being fruitful and multiplying until the Lord determines that the earth is full. Not when we think it is, but when he thinks it is. When he concludes that the number is complete, then that will be fine. We can all agree. <laughs> he will return to judge the earth when that day comes, and it will be then that he will renew the earth, that the righteous can inherit it forever, 
In fact, those that inherit the earth will include not only the ones that are on the earth in that day, but also that are alive when Jesus returns, but all the godly who have ever lived before will be raised up and we will all live here together and there will be room for us. We will inherit the earth. We will be resurrected to inherit the earth. And let's be clear about something. When the Lord commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with people, he was not commanding us to fill the earth with ungodly people, but with those who bear his image. In the time of Noah, the earth had become quite full of ungodly people, and God sent the flood to wipe them all out. God didn't want the earth filled with ungodly people, so he sent the flood. He started over with Noah and his family, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not he didn't want people, he didn't want people that were in rebellion and wicked. In fact, the only people that God ever commands to be fruitful and multiply are the godly. He, it was never his intent for the earth to be filled with lots and lots of ungodly people. This is clear not only from the fact that he only commands the godly to be fruitful and multiply, but also that when he first commanded it in Genesis 1, it was before we had fallen into sin. God had just made Adam and Eve in his own image, and it was then that he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The goal he gave to them was to fill the earth with people that were like they were at that time. People who loved one another, who lived in a righteous way before God. People who served one another and blessed each other. People who were full of love and thanksgiving to God. He wanted the earth to be filled with people who praised him, obeyed him, and people who delighted in him. Of course, God does not want the the earth to be filled with wicked people. And I tell you that God is going to get what he wants. He will. He's going to have the earth filled with godly people in the end. Satan and all those people who who never rejected Satan, who are joined in the fall with Satan and never rejected, never turned away from Satan, never repented and left the ways of Satan and his cause, they will all be cast into the lake of fire, into the outer darkness. God will remove them just like he removed in the days of Noah. They will not inherit the earth with the righteous. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to lead the earth back to him to redeem a people who are godly. Jesus is the leader who goes out ahead of us, the only righteous one. Noah and Abraham and all the godly people of the Old Testament lived in the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And the godly in the New Testament live, look back and live in faith and now his now accomplished work of redemption. And so in both the Old Testament and the New, we enter into the kingdom, into his kingdom in hope of eternal life. We look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and we look to him to restore godliness so that we can live according to his commandments in the earth. That's being fruitful and multiplying the earth the way God wants. And we look to him to destroy Satan and those who refuse to enter his kingdom and to establish the new heavens and new earth. So all this brings us to a further conclusion about fruit bearing with marriage. The Lord commands us to fill the earth with godly people. We're not fulfilling his commands simply by producing children. His will about this is clearly expressed in Malachi 2.15. In the context of Malachi 2.15, the Lord is rebuking the men for dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth, divorcing their wives, breaking the covenant of companionship. 
Now, of course, there are a number of reasons why this is displeasing to the Lord besides the one that is mentioned here. But look at the reason that's expressed in, in Malachi 2.15. But did he not make them one, okay, one flesh, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Why did he make the man and the woman to be one flesh in marriage? He seeks a godly offspring. That's why. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. You see the connection here. This shows that marriage is the place from which godly children spring, from which they are brought forth. Divorce and polygamy and casual hookups do great harm to the cause of godliness. Every godly man, like David, brought great trouble to their, or not every godly man, even godly men, like David, brought great trouble to their households by marrying multiple wives or by unfaithfulness in their marriage. A disruptive house is not a good place for cultivation of godliness. Children need to see the example of Christian love between their father and mother who are living in Christ Jesus. They need to see their parents praying together, seeking the Lord, praying for each other, and praying for their children to be godly. They need to see their parents uh, in, in their parents, how Christ laid down his life, and they see their father laying down his life for their mother. And they need to see how the church responds in the way that their mother cheerfully submits to their father in love. And when there are sins committed, which there will be, they need to see how Christians reconcile and forgive one another in Christ. Severed relationships between their father and mother do not show them anything about Christ and the reconciliation and peace that he gives. We should make it a goal to always live reconciled to each other in our home, that we don't go down, let the sun go down on our wrath. Of course, a parent who has, re, who has wrecked their family should pray for their children to be restored, and it may be that God will have mercy. But the point is that the Lord wants children to be brought up in a godly committed marriages the children might, that the children might cultivate godliness, that they might be, or that the children might be cultivated in godliness. He pronounces his blessing on us if we would be fruitful and multiply. Pronouncement of blessing, that's a huge thing. What is the pronouncement of blessing? That's the pronouncement of God's grace. That's the pronouncement of God's help because we can't do this without God's help. You can see in Genesis 1.28 where it says that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That means that he is committed to enabling them to be fruitful. We can bring forth godly offspring. We, I mean, we cannot bring forth godly offspring in our own strength, nor can we set a godly example in our marriages before them. But knowing that this is what God wants and that he blesses us to do this enables us to look to him in faith. And that is a super encouragement and a blessing. We dare not venture out in our own wisdom and strength when he has promised to help us, but we move forward in humble faith that if God is with us, we will indeed be able to have a part in bringing forth a godly seed into this world. And I should add a word for those who are not married or those who are not able to have children. Do not despair. Jesus Christ did not marry. 
and he is the most fruitful of all men. If you're not burdened with the care of children, you have the freedom to encourage godliness in others. I'm very thankful the way that that some of you in this church who do not have children are doing that. The Lord is using you to fill the earth with godly people, even though you are unable to have your own children. Some parents are so busy, you see, that their prayers are, are limited, and, but you can pray for them. You can pray for their children. You can minister among them. Don't devote yourself to television or, or, or just mindless internet games or things or worthless pursuits. If you do that, then you will be barren. You'll just be barren. I mean, you can, you can sit around and play, play video games all day or something. But if you join in the church in seeking to fill the earth with godly people, you can have a very important role in that, whether you have your own children, whether you're married or not. And of course, the starting place for all of us is with our own life as we seek Christ and we walk in the grace of God. See that you are in Christ and that you are growing in godliness by his grace. And then you will have a ministry with others. This is what God wants. Now we must move on to the third purpose of marriage and of sex in marriage. This, by the way, is one, the, the one of the three that was not an original purpose of marriage because it was not needed before the fall. It's the purpose that came after the fall. And that is that marriage and sex in marriage is for the purpose of preventing uncleanness. I borrowed that language from the Westminster Confession of Faith. By uncleanness is meant sexual immorality or fornication or being unchaste, to use the language we have in our catechism. Like it or not, some people are wrongly embarrassed about this. Prevention of uncleanness of sexual immorality is one of the purposes of marriage now that we're fallen. Some people say, oh, we don't need it for that. We do need it for that. God says so. We need to take his word seriously, not our word. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it clear that marriage is for the purpose of the prevention of uncleanness. In verse 1, Paul declares that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, it's a fine thing for a man to be free from the responsibilities of marriage that he might devote himself to service in the kingdom of God. Some, Jesus said, made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. That's what Paul is vying for, what he had done. But Paul realizes that many people are not cut out for a life without sexual relations. And that means that they ought to marry if they can. Jesus indicated in Matthew 19, 11, and 12 that only those who are given a special gift are able to bear the not getting married when the disciples said, well, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, not everyone's able to do that, but some, some are. And uh, he said that most don't have the gift. And that puts them in the place of great temptation to uncleanness, sexual immorality, if they do not marry. The Roman Catholic Church has made a very great error in requiring priests to be celibate. The long list of abused altar boys and pregnant nuns gives sad testimony to this unbiblical prohibition of marriage. Paul himself even says directly in 1 Timothy 4.3 that the prohibition of marriage 
is among the doctrines of demons. It's not from heaven. It's from the pit of hell. Again, Paul realized that most people are not cut out to live that way without sexual relations. So in verse 2, as well as in verse 9, Paul commends marriage for the purpose of helping them to avoid fornication. In verse 2, he commands marriage because sexual immorality is such a big problem. Look at what he says, verse 2. So he said, it's good for a man not to touch a woman in verse 1. Then he says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. It's because of sexual morality, because it is such a common thing, such a wicked thing, such a destructive thing that no Christian wants to have anything to do with. Marriage is a way to prevent it. We have seen from Genesis that there is by no means that that is by no means all that marriage is for. Okay, we've seen that marriage is for companionship and it's for being fruitful, but uh, procreation. And those who marry should seek to be faithful companions and they should seek to be fruitful. They always can do that. But in, in other words, their marriage should be all that marriage is supposed to be and not just a way to have lawful sex. If God withholds something from you, then that's God's doing and you trust him. But you should not withhold something that God has called you to do in terms of your efforts. Marriage is also a way, though, for individuals to find proper and lawful expression for their sexual desires. In verse 9, Paul explains that marriage not only helps to guard individuals from immorality, but that it also relieves them from having to deal with unsatisfied desires for sexual union, which he refers to as burning, actually. After again commending remaining unmarried, he says, But if they cannot exercise, this is verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul realizes, as Jesus said, that some cannot easily subdue their desire for sex. Because as believers, they know that they are not to be involved in sex outside of marriage. Not even as a solo act, they are left subject to burning. Burning with passion, as the translators have, I think, rightly interpreted it. If they have these strong desires, let them give proper expression to those passions in in a proper marriage relationship. Let them pursue that. Let them seek that. And again, if God doesn't grant it, it's in God's hands and he gives grace if he withholds. But what about those then who who would marry then but cannot find a spouse? It's important for you to know that for certain that God never puts you in a place where you have to sin. He never does that. In such a case, when you're in that place of of burning that he talks about, you are to cry out to him to take the place of the spouse and and to fill your life. As I said about those who do not have children, you do the same thing. Fill Fill that place with service to him and to others. We have looked at Joseph as an amazing example of a young man who remained chaste when he was unable to marry and when he faced many temptations. Joseph was a man of like passions. He was not a superhuman. He did what he did by the grace of God. He looked to Christ to fill him with joy. 
and to kiss him with the kisses of his love. And those were things that Joseph apparently was quite satisfied with because the first thing he thought of when Potiphar's wife tempted him is how could I do this great sin against God? How can I break off my relationship with him to be with you? Hard things like that have, like the situation that Joseph was in, have a way of actually strengthening our relationship with God. Else God would not give them to us. He doesn't give us things that are designed to destroy our relationship with him, but designed to strengthen and enhance. I have known of several young men who had a great problem with with pornography and and all of those kind of, of, of things who thought that it's impossible. Like there's absolutely no way that I can be chased. And I, I just I just can't. And sin often does seem that way, doesn't it? Ask a ask a person a drunkard or you know anything. We we have those we have those things and we feel like I, I can't. I just can't do this. But I've known several young men who were who were deeply engrossed in the in these sins for years that were able to completely come free and by the grace of God, not because they were superhuman, not because they didn't have a temptations, pressures and all that, but because of God's grace. So we need to know that God's grace is sufficient to enable us to stand. But now let's move on to look further at the place of sex in marriage. You can see in 1 Corinthians 7, Verse 3 through 5, how Paul insists that those who are married are to be sexually involved with their spouses to help prevent sexual immorality. So if you are married, then it's sinful for you not to engage in sexual relations, putting yourself in the unnecessary place of temptation or your spouse. In verse 3, he describes it as a duty given to marriage. Just as it's a duty to provide for your household or a duty to pray for them, so it's a duty to be sexually intimate with your spouse. As it says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. It is a duty. And likewise also the wife to her husband. It is a duty that she has to him. In verse 5, when he says, do not deprive one another, that word deprive, it means defraud. You've made a covenant and it's just like if you went to someone, you said, hey, uh, I'll build you a house. You give me $100,000 or I better say a million dollars today and, and I'll build you a house. And then uh, they give you the, the million dollars and then you, you, you don't ever build a house. You defrauded them. You had a covenant. You, it, and it's a covenant bond. You're not fulfilling your covenanted obligations to your spouse if you don't render them the affection that is due to them. In verse 5, Paul also says, that this duty is not to be neglected except for short periods of time and then only by mutual consent. He gives the example of voluntary abstinence for the purpose of prayer and fasting for a season. And of course, you know, when we're fasting, we fast from food. We also fast from sexual relations at the same time. That's a typical way of fasting. And of course, there might be other reasons such as for work terms or for military duty or, but even these must be used with consideration for one's spouse. And as much as possible, you must not stay apart from your spouse sexually. Verse 5 says that you should come together again 
so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's not the only reason for sex in marriage, but it is indeed a very important reason. We hear of so many, so many, who fall into sexual immorality, and many times it is in part due to the neglect of this duty as a, that's a contributing factor to the problem. It certainly does not give anyone a legitimate excuse for adultery or fornication. Someone can't say, oh, I committed adultery or, you know, I did this because my, my spouse wouldn't have relations with me. That's not the because. The because is because of your sin. It's true that what they did was sinful and they're held responsible in, it, in that it did put you in a place of temptation. But putting you in the place of temptation you can't blame someone who puts you in the temptation, place of temptation for your sin. It's your sin. And so we always need to keep that straight. We, we, it's, uh, the scripture is clear. But it is a duty that is neglected and that you are responsible for. And in that way, on your part, you did have a part in, their, in the sin. So you see that sexual relations have a very important part to play in marriage. Indeed, as we have seen today, sex is to be a part of marriage as a core aspect of companionship for the procreation of children and for the prevention of uncleanness. Those three things. As I told you last week, as fallen human beings, we are selfish by nature. These things don't come easy for us. Marriage is a marvelous thing. Sex is a marvelous part of marriage as God gave it to us. But our sin often makes it one of the most difficult aspects of marriage, one of the areas where we have a lot of problems and and struggles and things. So we need to come to Christ for mercy and to seek his grace in our time of need to help us. He is a merciful and gracious high priest. We cannot live in marriage as we ought to apart from his help. We must enter his kingdom and find forgiveness, justification because of our sin and guilt. And then, having come to him, we must look to him to give us his spirit. We must keep coming to him so that we can start loving our spouse and living in our marriages in the way that brings glory to his name. And that includes having godly sexual union with our spouse. As Proverbs 5, 18 through 20 puts it, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Please stand and let's pray and ask for God's mercy and help. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. We have seen his excellence today and how he is the one who is able to transform our lives so that we are able to walk with you. He is a compassionate and faithful high priest. He is one who ministers to us and who gives us all that we need. We thank you for the instruction we have from the word as we look at the duty that you have given us. We know that this duty is either a a bondage to us, or it is something that is liberating to us in the grace of God. And we pray, Father, that we would find your grace 
for our time of need. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ Jesus, that we have the the grace that we need, even as I was speaking about that some who have been in great struggles in these sins have found deliverance through Jesus Christ. It is not always that we can come and find immediate deliverance. Sometimes there is a battle and a struggle that goes on and we grow through that battle and through that struggle. But we thank you that your grace is sufficient and we pray, Lord, that that we would put away all of our excuses and that we would come to find deliverance from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the freedom and the, the liberty that he gives us. Father, I pray that we would encourage one another in these things. And I thank you for some of the young men that I mentioned before who have, have had great success in that sense of finding Christ's grace to them in this particular sin that they have been able to help other young men who would be struggling with this thing and to let them know that, that in your grace that it is, it is something that can be done and that you are able to deliver us. Oh Lord, thank you that for the way that you work. We know, Lord, that one person struggles with one sin and another person struggles with another sin. But we thank you, Lord, that that these things help us to be humble and to truly learn to seek your face as we've never done before. And we thank you, Lord, that in doing so, that we do find your grace. We pray, Lord, for whatever it is that we're struggling with that seems impossible to us, that we would be able to, to pour ourselves out before you and that we would find relief and deliverance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The blessing of the Lord. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.